A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax. And think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, as well as the latest news from Ukraine, we cover further updates on the debate over funding for Ukraine, and we speak to analyst Konrad Muzika from Rohan Consultancy to hear his analysis on the war in winter 2023. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. If we give President Zelensky the tools, the Ukrainians will finish the job. Slava Ukraini! Nobody wanna break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Tuesday, the 5th of December. One year and 284 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today I'm joined by our associate editor Dominic Nichols, assistant comment editor Francis Sternley, and our guest is Konrad Muzika, independent defence analyst focusing on Russia and Belarus, and director of RohanConsulting.com. I started by asking Dom to take us through the latest updates from Ukraine. Well, hi David, hi everybody, welcome Conrad. So, a day that has been the feature of things in the last few weeks. So not not a lot of, well, no big moves, but let's start over in the east, Navdivka. Russia has advanced there, particularly to the north of the of the town. I mean, the town is, is quite linear, runs on northwest, southeast. So when we say north, it, it depends which bit you, you start from. But essentially, from the from the sort of southernmost point, north of that is the coke plant and the, and the reservoir. And, uh, and they have advanced near to the, the reservoir there. So that's the kind of that prong that this is a two pronged envelopment they're trying to go for. That's on the the north and the east side. Um, Ukraine has counterattacked on the other prong that goes on the south, southwest, west. So the town of Stepovi, which is which is to the northwest of the town of the whole linear town. Ukraine has pushed back there slightly. So no, no big movements, but still a lot of extreme violence happening there. Now, further to the southwest, and Russian artillery this morning has killed two civilians, injured others in Hezon. This came from the from the regional governor, Alexander Pradukin. The city mayor, so Hezon city mayor, Roman Brocho, said in a separate artillery strike on a medical facility, had, had injured doctors there and staff, no deaths reported. Overnight, Russia says that Ukraine launched a 41-drone uh, wave 
across occupied Crimea. Well, Russia didn't say the occupied bit. I did that in for accuracy. They said 22 drones were destroyed and 13 intercepted over Crimea and the Sea of Azov. Don't know the difference necessarily between destroyed and intercepted. I imagine intercepted means that it it it, it has an effect when it lands. It's still it's still sizable enough to have have an effect on the ground, as we've seen before. Although no reported casualties in this strike. Obviously, the Russian MOD said that this was another terrorist attack, unlike their nice, cuddly drone strikes. We're clearly back in Schrodinger's drone territory again. Um, Elsewhere, an advisor to President Zelensky has said Ukraine is changing its tactics, moving to effective defence as winter sets in. So this is Mikhailo Podolyak speaking on Twitter He said, undoubtedly, the winter and the analysis of our own and the enemy's resource capabilities require adjustments in tactics. Uh, On the front line and in the cities, we are already moving to a different tactic of warfare, effective defence in certain areas, continuation of offensive operations in other areas, special strategic operations on the Crimean Peninsula and in the Black Sea waters, and significantly reformatted missile defence of critical infrastructure. He also um, talked about increased domestic arms production. I thought that was interesting, the reformatted missile defence. We're uh, anticipating a a renewed Russian attempt to go for Ukraine's critical national infrastructure as it did last last winter. The lattice work of air defence for Ukraine has been bolstered, obviously, over the last year. Um, but we think that the recent drone strikes, uh, waves of drone attacks, is there to either try and feel out to see where the air defense is trying to trying to use them up of course a lot of the air defense against drones is not so much missiles it's the um, things like the gepard the german gepard twin 25 mil barrels just just blasting rounds into the air which bring down low low and slow flying drones so i mean it all adds up clearly but drone strikes are not necessarily going to tease out the missiles that would then be that Ukraine will obviously be trying to hold on to for any ballistic missile and cruise missile strikes that are obviously, well, not obviously, but anticipated to come in the next few weeks. Now, separately, today's British MOD update, Defence Intelligence update, says that Russia um, is aiming to take control of the entire Donetsk region uh, through this winter. In their latest Defence Intelligence brief, they say the Russian army has made creeping advances in um, the town of Marinka in recent weeks, Um and the renewed efforts against that town, part of the autumn offensive, which is prioritising extending Russia's control over the remaining parts of Donetsk Oblast, they say highly likely still one of the Kremlin's core war aims. Elsewhere, internationally, Finland is going to spend tens of millions of euros to increase its uh, production of artillery shells uh, for Ukraine. This is from Defence Minister Antti Hakkinen. We have finalised negotiations on how Finland will continue to increase its munition production to arm Ukraine, he said, adding it's going to invest tens, as I say, tens of millions of euros in the project. So to date, we think Finland has supplied Ukraine with about £1.3 billion, that's £1.7 billion US dollars in military aid since the start of the full-scale invasion. But... Um, Nice one, Finland. Pat on the back. Bust whilst you're there. Get on the naughty step. Two Finnish companies are suspected of earning millions by exporting three and a half thousand drones to Russia in violation of European Union sanctions. So this is Finland's customs agency have done this investigation. They say drones, controllers, semiconductors and anti-drone defences 
have been cleared for export to other countries but ended up in Russia. Finland's customs agency said there are altogether six criminal suspects, one of whom has been detained since September. I presume they mean they, they've picked up the other five and they're not now running for the hills. But um, yes, yeah, so six people picked up for that. Comes after that amazing report last week from the Financial Times that I talked about in last week's Defence in Depth about how exports of, of prohibited items that are restricted by sanctions regimes for the US UK, EU and Japan from Turkey seem to have ended up in Russia either direct or via five former, mostly the stands, but also including Georgia. Have a look at last week's defence in depth. Have a look at the the Financial Times for more details on that. But yes, all all part of this effort to evade sanctions. And um, so fair play to Finland Customs Agency for taking the action they have and, and reporting it. I'll take a pause there, David. Thank you very much, Dom. Let's go to Francis Sternley then. Francis, what have you been looking at over the past 24 hours? Well, thank you, David. We have two significant long reads in the Washington Post to discuss together shortly. But turning to the political realm first, NATO has just three years to prepare for an attack by Russia. That's according to Poland's National Security Agency. This is coming off the back of that report by the German Council on Foreign Relations, which warned Russia could invade a NATO country in six years' time and Germany's armed forces needed, to use their term, a quantum leap to be ready for it. But the Polish are saying that that timescale is wrong, that as little as six to ten years is too optimistic. If you want to avoid war, they say NATO countries on the eastern flank should adopt a shorter three-year time period to prepare for confrontation. And they are urging thereof for there to be more Polish mobilisation. Now, these are, suffice to say, quite extraordinary reports and warrant deeper discussion another time. But for now, I will say that the timescale is arguably less relevant than the assumption buried within of Russia's long-term military capability and political flexibility, both of which will depend on the outcome in Ukraine. If the Russians suffered a decisive military defeat, for instance, then I cannot foresee much chance of military escalation into other countries, especially not ones in NATO. I stress that because I think both reports are rooted in this rather misconceived assumption of stalemate, which Timothy Snyder dispelled so passionately in our interview with him that we put out over the weekend. That conception is not predestined by any stretch. The West still has agency in this war, whereas at the moment it seems to be convincing itself that it is almost powerless to the forces of fate. I'd also question the notion that Putin, assuming he were still leader in years' time, would ever risk attacking NATO. As I've said many times, my own understanding of Putin is that he operates in the space that is afforded to him. The West was weak on Ukraine and he exploited that. Where there is strength, he recoils. Again, the West has agency. We are not victims of uncontrollable forces, whether a man or history disguised as a man. Uh, But that's enough Hegel for now. Staying on Poland, that blockade on the Polish-Ukrainian border, the most significant political disruption between the two countries, who of course remain core allies, 
by those disgruntled truckers has now cost Ukraine 200 million pounds, an MP has said. Fortunately for Kyiv, this week, Slovak truckers have temporarily ended their blockade of the country's sole truck crossing with Ukraine. The head of the truckers union there has told Reuters that the blockade had been interrupted after some haulers stuck in the resulting queue threatened to block roads near the crossing, which would cut access to villages near the border. He added that the union leaders will meet later today to discuss whether further action is necessary. Now, another point of tension between Kyiv and its allies comes down to funding, of course, and matters do seem to be reaching boiling point in the United States. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan has said Congress will let Putin prevail if he fails to approve, if it fails, forgive me, to approve the deadlocked £40 billion, that's about £61 billion, aid package for Ukraine. To quote from him, Congress has to decide whether to continue to support the fight for freedom in Ukraine or whether Congress will ignore the lessons we've learned from history. It is that simple. It is that stark a choice. Now, in a sign of just how serious things have become, President Zelensky will talk to US senators later today in a private address in a bid to convince them to support that aid package. Putin, meanwhile, is exploiting his revived political position following the Ukrainian counteroffensive, which we'll discuss in a second, to continue trying to boost his leverage in the Middle East. He will visit Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates this week, Bloomberg is reporting. Neither party are party to the International Criminal Court, meaning Putin does not face being detained by them on the war crimes arrest warrant we've discussed so many times previously. But perhaps most significantly, though, the president of Iran will visit Russia on Thursday with a political and economic delegation. We don't know much more than that. But as we've discussed ever since the terrible events in Israel of October the 7th, the relationship between Moscow and Tehran is an important one geopolitically, providing political cover for the Iranian regime to continue financing terrorism, as well as financial support directly, given the large amounts the Kremlin has paid them for those devastating Shahid drones used to attack Ukrainian cities. So it's something for us to continue to monitor, and I'm sure we'll draw attention to it again later this week. Well, thank you very much, Francis. Let's go on then and look at these Washington Post pieces in a little more detail. There's two of them. They're long and detailed. Francis, would you take us through some of your um, findings there? Certainly. Uh, So I can't do justice to all the nuances here, just provide a summary. But we'll get into a little bit of the meteor discussions later on. There are two long reads published on the same day. The first is an examination of the lead up to Ukraine's counteroffensive based on interviews with more than 30 senior officials from Ukraine, the US and European nations. It's called Miscalculations, Divisions, Marked Offensive Planning by US-Ukraine. And... Just really some bullet point summaries here. U.S. officials believed Ukraine's failed counteroffensive started two months later than it should should have done, according to the piece. They're said to have thought a start in mid-April 2023 would have prevented Russia from strengthening its defences. Ukraine waited in June to launch the offensive, believing more training and weapons were needed, the Post says. The US also said to have disagreed with Ukraine's choice to attack simultaneously at three points, east towards Bakhmut and southwards towards Melitopol and Berdyansk, in a bid to overstretch the Russians. They instead feared that that would fail and that it was more likely to succeed if it was a massed armoured assault at a single point on the southern front 
and that that could see the Ukrainians reach the Sea of Azov within 60 to 90 days, severing the Russian army in two. Those large mechanised assaults, which had featured significantly in US planning, were apparently abandoned by Ukraine in the first days of the counteroffensive after they caused heavy losses in men and equipment. Now, in terms of further detail, apparently Ukrainian US and military mil- and British military officers held eight major tabletop war games to build a campaign plan. But Washington miscalculated the extent to which Ukraine's forces could be transformed into a Western style fighting force in a short period, especially without Kyiv having that air power integral to modern militaries. Now, of course, that's a theme we've discussed many times, indeed, with people on the ground about the scale of Western training or lack thereof. Now, apparently, the U.S. Intelligence Committee had a more downbeat view than much of the U.S. military that assessed that the offensive had only a 50-50% chance of success, given those multi-layered defence Russia had built up. Many in the Ukraine and West underestimated Russia's ability to rebound from the disasters it had suffered early in the war and exploit its strengths, namely manpower, mines and a willingness to sacrifice lives on a scale that few other countries can even countenance. So that's the first piece. The second is how the battle actually unfolded on the ground over the summer and the fall and the widening fissures between Washington and Kyiv. This is based on interviews with more than 30 senior Ukrainian US military officials, as well as over two dozen officers and troops on the front line. It relays that 70% of troops in one of the brigades that led the counteroffensive and equipped with the newest Western weapons entered battle with no combat experience. Another fact is that Ukraine, or as reported by the Post, should I say, is that Ukraine's setbacks on the battlefield led to rifts with the US over how best to cut through deep Russian defences. The commander of US forces in Europe couldn't apparently get in touch with Ukraine's top brass for weeks in the early part of the campaign amid tension over the American second guessing of battlefield decisions. Each side blamed the other for mistakes or miscalculations. US military officials concluded that Ukraine had fallen short in basic military tactics, including the use of ground reconnaissance to understand the density of minefields. And Ukrainian officials said that it was the Americans who didn't seem to comprehend how attack drones and other technology had fundamentally transformed the battlefield. And It then looks into some of the statistics of those killed and looks at the testimonies of those who are actually experiencing this in very vivid fashion. But I know we'll get into some of this in a bit more detail, but that's the the essence of these pieces, which I would highly recommend listeners do actually read properly, because I'm really only giving the the bullet points here as opposed to the full in-depth, which is fascinating and I think quite essential reading. Well, thank you very much, Francis. Before we go to our guest, Conrad, Dom, do you have anything to add to that? I mean, I know I sent both of these pieces around this morning, so I think it's fairly essential reading for us. Yes, I do. Got a few bits and bobs, so please bear with me. I mean, the first thing I would say is that the old military maxim, success has many fathers, but failure is an orphan. I think that that's ringing true at the moment. It's it's always been true. So, yes, it's very easy with hindsight to point out where things have have gone wrong. It's easy to point out where things have gone wrong. A lot of people don't do it, though, and you don't talk about lessons identified and lessons learned, two completely different things. You know, you don't learn a lesson until you've properly brought it on board, and it's often led to systemic and organisational change. Only then can you really have said you've learnt that lesson. So, yeah, it's very easy to look back and say, oh, it would have been, would have been different if you'd, if you'd done X, Y and Z. 
I thought it was interesting. The intelligence agencies had a had a they, they called about fifty fifty success rate. The military seemed more upbeat. I mean that is that is again fairly standard. The the intelligence agencies always downplay it to a degree, which might be more accurate, or it might be keeping their options open for the for the after action review if it's all gone if it's all gone right or wrong. The military tend to be more upbeat. I mean it's in the military's character. The military animal is generally quite an upbeat person you want someone who is prepared to risk their lives for a, a cause greater than themselves to be a fairly small optimistic type person so they tend to look on the on the bright side which doesn't always work well it doesn't always work well when you're trying to fight a battle it doesn't work well when you're trying to bring in large programs of huge capital equipment the conspiracy of optimism as it's uh, as it's referred to and the other thing i'd say the only last the last thing i'll say before i get into the meat is the these articles were were based on a lot of interviews with senior military people. Now, I'm not trying to downplay who they were. We don't know who they were. Don't know who the the Washington Post had access to. But the the terminology, and certainly in British journalism, I'm not so sure for the US. But we, in British journalism and in military and governmental circles, we refer to senior as being major and above. Now, not not doing down any any majors in the army. I used, used to be one myself, but that's kind of the entry level to the to middle management of the of the military. So actually the 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 level of awareness you might have can vary greatly from one from one to another. So I just I'm always wary of articles that are, have unnamed sources, but we should be careful when we when we say senior officials and senior military people. I mean a major might be in the army in the British army for I know probably 12, between 12 Years. Some people stay in that for the rest of their career, 10, 12 years-ish. So relatively junior, and I'm not trying to do them down. There's some actually fantastic people at that, at that rank and their equivalents in the, you know, in the other services. But we've just got to be, be aware of the, um, the modelling clay with, with which we are building these, these arguments. On to the actual articles themselves. I mean, all good to keep the debate going and have something at which we can throw sticks or, or hold up to cheerlead or, or what have you. It's better than having nothing. I thought the language of the article was interesting. The language of the articles were, were interesting. And they talk about, it talks about Ukraine's limited weaponry being obliterated. I mean, a very powerful verb. I can't imagine that was in any sort of staff handbook. But, you know, obliterated is very colourful. They talk about months of planning with the United States was tossed aside by Zeluzny after the fourth day. Again, very, very emotive stuff. Um, and they say, even among Ukraine supporters, there's a growing political reluctance to contribute more to a precarious cause. And it's like, OK, who used the word precarious? Because if that's if that's the comment by the paper, uh, that's interesting. If someone said it, fair enough, we can examine that. But I would say if it's precarious, that's a self-fulfilling prophecy. The West could have made it less precarious by supporting more. And they also say Ukraine's slow-moving, dismounted slog that has retaken only slivers of territory. Again, really emotive language, I would say. If Ukraine considers that to have come at an acceptable cost, it's worth doing. We don't talk about, I mean, stand fast, what the, the casualties that Russia is seems willing to take. But when they, after days and days and days around Bakhmut, or as we're looking now at Divka or elsewhere from down the line, this slow-moving slog that retakes slivers of territory, well, it all adds up. I'm, I'm talking... A, I'm happy to to take on board that this counteroffensive is is now finished for the for for the year. But if you are prepared to slog slowly and take slivers of territory, then then it does all add up. So I just think the language is quite colourful, and I 
there's a phrase I love from LBC journalist called James O'Brien, who, who says, why do you think, you go to the fairground, why do you think the ghost train gets more customers than the speak your weight machine? And it's because we don't like being told the truth. We like the sort of colourful, glary, amazing stuff. So phrases like obliterated, tossed aside, slivers of territory, all this kind of stuff, it's very colourful. And I wonder if that, that shapes the narrative through which, or shapes the framework through which we are receiving all the other information in these in these very good articles and and it and it almost sets out their stall before we have a chance to take the information on at face value can i go on for a little bit david because i've got a few other more bits and pieces to say no please please this is absolutely fascinating i, I would say conrad i'm sure you've read these articles as well so it'd be great to hear your thoughts um when we come to you afterwards but dom nichols please continue Okay, so some phrases I pulled out of the articles. One was, surveillance and attack drones crowd the skies overhead. That was uh, an observation from the Ukrainians going undergoing the training. And I don't think that was replicated in the training. There's, there's talk that they had to take their own drones to say to the US trainers, look, we really need to introduce this because we just, just hadn't seen it in this scope and scale as in Western forces in combat, in contact with the enemy, not seen it before. So I, I don't think that was taken on board by the trainers. They also said if this were the United States or NATO, the operation would have uh, included devastating air power to weaken the enemy and protect troops on the ground. But the Ukrainians would have to make do with little or none. Again, I think that's a telling statement on the weakness of Western military support. It's like, you know, if, it, there's, only, there's very few. There are some, but few references to air power. And it's absolutely fundamental. I'm surprised that that wasn't made more of in the analysis going alongside these or, or running through these, these articles. Absolutely critical, the, the air power talks about how Ukraine's military leadership had decided to use more experienced brigades to hold off the Russians during last winter, keeping fresh troops for these new brigades to receive training abroad and then do the fight in the spring, summer, whenever it was. Um, they say only about, when it came to the counteroffensive, about 70% of soldiers in, as they described, the 47th, I think it was a motorised brigade, but anyway, the 47th brigade, only about 70% of the soldiers or sorry, about 70% did not have battlefield experience, according to one senior commander of the brigade. Okay, just just on that, I mean, there's only one commander of the brigade, so senior, who is that? But by the by. So 70% of fresh troops, 30% had combat experience. Okay, I would say, well, 30%, that's not not bad. That's a third in the most challenging of circumstances. And so you're then relying on good leadership from that third to inculcate the, the values and the fighting spirit and the tactics and the knowledge into the other, you know, the other 70%. The military runs on a kind of rule of thirds. There's a reason why you can't have three companies in a battalion, three battalions in a brigade, three brigades in a division, four, four people, four men, usually in a, in a, in a half section, uh, as in a fire team. And it's generally found throughout history that in any group, there'll be one motivator, might not necessarily be the senior rank present, but there'll be one motivator and three people, and this happens with conscript armies more than professional armies, who are reluctant and scared, naturally scared, to to stick their head above the the trench and start fighting. And you need that one motivator to get the others going. So one in three, one in four is deemed to be this, this sort of prime focus to get the others to then rely on their training and do what they've been taught and all the rest of it, but you do need that that what, that third. And so if they say there's 30% here who had combat experience, and as I say, going up against the Russian army in the 21st century, you're getting some experience there, then that's not bad as long as the lessons are then pushed down. Okay, next point. Ukrainian soldiers brought their own drones. This is to the US training in Grafenwehr in southern Germany. Blah, 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 blah. Drone use was only later added following Ukrainian feedback. Um, now, the US military are certainly at lower levels, battalion and below, brigade possibly, 
brigade combat team and below, very drill focused, and that's for good reason because it is utterly chaotic at the at the lower end of the military machine when when you're in contact. So you need drills. Now, Western militaries are not; it's not a drill to the same extent as the former Soviet or the Soviet model was, which has been drilled into the the Russian army. But it's still very; it can be a little bit clunky at times. So I'm not surprised that it took a while for for new ideas or experience from the battlefield to be fed into these training programs, training programs that are pretty well templated for new new recruits. Not forgetting, of course, that these new recruits were going from almost zero to max speed from never having picked up a rifle to being expected to do combined arms warfare across a, a minefield in the face of a determined pre-dispositioned um, enemy. I mean, tough stuff. Okay, I was on this. I've got a few other bits and pieces, but I know time's marching on. I'll just finish with my problem with the article overall is that it says it highlights a lot of areas where, where things didn't work. And it says, together, all these factors make victory for Ukraine far less likely than years of war and destruction. Again, I think that's a that's a negative take, and I'm not trying to be a I'm not Ukrainian fanboy here. I'm just saying that if that's how you're positing your argument, then I, I don't think it. I don't think the rest of the article would have been written in, in a in a completely unemotional way for for readers to make their own minds up. Now, when we analyse something, we need to be clear between causes, which I think in these articles they're referring to as factors, and effects. Now, I think these articles and the wider public discourse lean too heavily on the effects and few factors or causes are examined. And the factors here, and I think there are only two. So the articles say, um, together, all these factors. I think there are only two factors, two causes of where the military situation is at the moment. And it's number one, the training level required from the troops is massive to go, like I say, from virtually nothing to major combined arms warfare without air power. I mean, that that leap is huge. And number two, the resilience that is required from the internal and external support in terms of the response required to face this scale of warfare in terms of industrial support and the resolve from external partners, Western partners for, for shorthand. So the resilience required to, to rebuild factories inside Ukraine and outside to to start churning out production lines of drones and artillery shells and tanks and all the things we thought we'd left behind. Now, are we really are we up for that? Because we need to be, and the Western leaders need to be. That fantastic thing from the Lucerne dialogue a couple of weeks ago, when you saw um, General Richard Barons turning around to um, industry and thought leaders in the U- in Europe and saying, "Don't don't tell me you can't afford it. You guys are sitting on 15 trillion euros of." of uh, spending a year you know you can do this he said i need 75 billion euros for a couple of years and i'll get this done so it's not a, it's a choice it's not a question of cost so there's only two factors here i think the training level required for the troops to be able to do what we are asking them to do expecting them to do and the resilience required from industry and politics and all the rest of it all in all i wouldn't expect an awful lot from the next few months but there will be pressure for action particularly given the u.s timetable and these articles i do have a few issues with them but i think they are they are good they are a helpful addition to the conversation but there are there are threads that need to be pulled and the final thing is that the there's a, a saying in the military that you know make the right decision or make the wrong decision but just make a decision because the absence of a decision can, can lead to chaos panic confusion and ultimate defeat so the article is saying that ukraine got it wrong this way they should have done that it's like okay fine they they made a choice it might have been right it might have been wrong but they made a decision and um we should see it in that light 
Well, thank you very much, Dom and Francis, for your thoughts there. Thank you for taking the time to read all of that and give us uh, your analysis. Conrad, thank you so much for joining us. It's an absolute honour to have you on the podcast. Would you start just by telling us a bit about yourself and your work? And then it'd be great to get some of your thoughts as well uh, on, on, on what you've been hearing. So my name is Conrad Unzika. I am independent defence analyst. I also am the owner of a company called Rohan Consulting, which provides open source military intelligence on Russian and Belarusian armed forces. And obviously, since the war started, we we expanded the coverage to to cover uh, the war in Ukraine from operational and strategic points of view. To put it this way. Um, so that's 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 essentially something that that we do on a daily basis. But you know, if if I can expand on that on this a bit, you know, slowly I think you know we will be refocusing to back to Russia because there's a lot of stuff happening in Russia currently in terms of the Russian armed forces modernization programs, the the expansion of Russian armed forces in size, the addition uh, of new divisions, brigades, regiments, and and so on. So we, so you talked a lot about, you know, what the head of the Polish National Security Bureau mentioned today, a few days ago, actually. So, you know, this is something that we also would like to address as a long-term project. Well, thank you so much for that introduction, Conrad. Can I ask you a very broad question, really? What do you see as an analyst to be the the key issues and problems for both sides, Ukrainian and Russian, going into this winter? I think for Russia, to, to, to start with Russia, I think, I think they've, they've spent a lot of effort over the last year and year, year and a half to bring the industry and the mobilization to the pace that would allow them uh, to switch from the defensive posture that they ended up with in 2022 to increasingly offensive one. So we are talking about the production of drones, production of missiles, imports of uh, Shahid uh, suicide drones. We are talking about withdrawing of tanks and armored vehicles from from storage bases, repairing and modernizing them and fielding them into the combat. And they've reached a point now where after the Ukrainian counteroffensive culminated, Russians are slowly regaining the initiative. And we are not only talking about what's happening in Avdivka, or near Avdivka, but we are also now talking about Bakhmut. We are talking about areas near Kupiansk. We are talking also about Zaporizhia um, in the areas where Ukrainians were uh, previously advancing. So, you know, the tables may have turned for the foreseeable future, to be, to be honest. The pro- but, but I think that the problem is for the, for the Russians that they do not... When we look at what happened in Avdivka, you know, the meat, meat grinder and so on, we still see that they are not able to fully utilize the equipment, the personnel, artillery, aviation that they have available in a combined arms fashion. Um, and as the war, as this war has shown, it's incredibly difficult to penetrate a well-established defensive positions. That, that's something that both, both sides struggled with. 
that's why I think it's incredibly important for Ukraine now to start building their own fortifications and to dig deep, deep, as deep as they possibly can and expand the fortifications in depth as well. Speaking of Ukraine, the biggest problem after the counteroffensive, I think, from what I've been reading and hearing, is that Ukraine needs to think about its theory of victory. What's their ultimate objective? How they would like to end this war? Is is getting Crimea back still on the table? Or maybe just getting to Crimea, retaking territory uh, that Russia captured since February last year? Or maybe it's to force Russia into negotiations? I don't know what this theory is, but but the political leadership needs to articulate that in one way or another. As you mentioned today, Ukrainians are slowly moving onto the defensive along the wider front, I think. So likely the next year they are going to spend on on the defensive because the amount of ammunition and and the amount of available equipment that can be passed on to them, especially from Europe. It's so limited that it's going to be incredibly difficult to, if not impossible, to replicate what the West do- donated to Ukraine last year and at the beginning of this year for the next counter-offensive. Conrad, thank you so much for that account there. Jens Stoltenberg said last week that the West should be ready to receive, quote, bad news from the front lines. He wasn't specific on what that might be. From your work and your analysis, where do you think the pressure points are? Where are the areas of greatest peril for Ukrainian forces at the moment? So a few weeks ago, we were looking at Avdivka, obviously, and Luhansk Oblast, where according to Ukrainian sources, Russians have now about 120 plus thousand personnel, you know, thousands of tanks and artillery pieces and, and so on. And there is an expectation that at some point during the winter, Russians would launch a attack towards Kupiansk to reach the city, which is, which is divided. Oh, there's a river, Oskil river that flows through, through it. So. The river forms a very nice de- defensive bar- barrier. So you know, probably, or at the very least, we will be looking at the Russians too getting to this river. And then, and then we don't know what may probably happen. But for the past couple of weeks, we've also noticed an increased number of Ukrainian reports stating that you know, Russians have increased the temper of their attacks in Zaporizhia Oblast and in the western parts of the Donetsk Oblast, essentially the areas where Ukrainians conducted their own counteroffensive. So the concern is that Russians would deploy more personnel, more equipment into these areas, and they will slowly recapture the territories that they lost uh, since June, uh, which would obviously be a quite a big blow. Uh, to Ukrainians. Uh, but as I said, uh, the main Ukrainian objective should be to uh, defend in depth, create for fortifications, and allow to redeploy some of the forces that are near the front line, take them to, to the rear, retrain them, 
and then have some sort of rotation because now as things stand now there are some un- units that have been in combat for more than a year and that's obviously not something that's sustainable Conrad, we reported yesterday, and we've spoken a bit about it today as well, on the intra-Ukrainian political military tensions. We also spoke today, as you've heard, about the, well, you, you might tritely call it the blame game for Ukraine's unsuccessful counteroffensive. It would be good to hear your take on this. What, if you were to sum up your thoughts, what were the problems with the counteroffensive? And perhaps more importantly, going to what Don was saying, what can Ukraine do now to, to win? It's an incredibly difficult topic to comment on, but let me say that the tensions between Zelensky and Zawuzny have been ongoing since pre-war. So that's nothing new. We don't really know the scope of, of the tensions, although, you know, reports indicate that Zelensky often just goes over Zawuzny and Zaluzhny is not really a big part of the decision-making processes. I don't know to what extent this is accurate, but obviously it does not. But obviously a, it has a big impact on the troops because Zaluzhny is very popular with, with the guys for at the bottom. And second of all, uh, the duality of command is, is not going to deliver any successes, right? Because it's simply that that's not going to work. And there will always be tension between Zaluzhny and Zelensky. So the ability of Ukraine on a strategic level to command their forces effectively on the battlefield will be significantly degraded. And I'm not sure if there is anything that can be done about this at the current stage. I think one, one guy would need to step down or, or take a step back. But I'm not sure to what extent this can happen. And sorry, the second part of the question was? Well, going on to kind of what Don was talking about, what lessons can be learned from the past year to, to help Ukraine do better in the, in the coming campaign? I think it depends on what we mean saying do better. It, it also depends what it means, what, what is victory for Ukraine right now. I think Ukraine will not be able to defeat Russia strategically. The objective of pushing Russia back to... February 22 borders is going to be incredibly difficult, if not impossible. So I think the focus on the Ukrainian side should be to, you know, on should be on on the one side on the basic stuff. So improve me, uh, medical support, case evacuation, med, medical ev- evacuation, reconnaissance to improve troop mo- mobility. Um, the the United States have thousands of M one one threes. Ukrainians value these vehicles a lot, so giving them to to Ukrainians would would be a slow level of effort, but it would make a huge Im- impact for forces on the ground. Another aspect that has also been mentioned publicly is that well, is that Ukraine is producing or will be producing tens of thousands of drones next year and and we suspect that at least some of them will be strike drones long-range ones uh we've already seen multiple reports and multiple pieces of evidence suggesting that ukraine is very comfortable striking targets across russia crimea in- included so next year it is likely that ukraine as it's taking a more de- defensive stance it will 
display more offensive behavior in the air through the utilization of strike drones across Russia. Conrad, just one more question from me, and then I'll hand over to Dom and Francis, who have been listening to this with great interest. Just looking now at the Russian army, what do you make of their performance this year? I'd be interested to hear if you think they've been underestimated by analysts and journalists. And also, what innovations have they shown, in your in your opinion? There are different Russian armies, right? It's you, We cannot overgeneralize about what the Russian army is or how it performs, because there are some aspects which perform very poorly, including command and control at the highest level. If you look at at, this, at uh, their combat performance near Avdivka over the last couple of months, it's been deplorable. But at the same time, I think it also highlights that you know Russians are willing and able to sacrifice a lot of men to get the attack go- going to push on, even if even if the the gangs are not there. So they are very comfortable with the game of attrition. Well, because most likely they they know that that they can afford to lose this these many men. But uh, you know, they captured Bahmut this year as well, a very important political item, I think, for Ukraine. Not necessarily important from a military point of view, but Zelensky went to the city, he took the, the flag of Ukrainian defenders, took it to, con- to Congress. So I think for Zelensky, it was a big loss. But as we stated, after the, 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 the fall of Bakhmut will would not deliver strategic ch- changes on the battlefield. And the fall of Bakhmut would not automatically mean that Krematorsk or Slavyansk would be in, in danger. And that's ultimately what what happened we we also noticed over the past couple of weeks or a couple of months rather an increased tempo of russian cross-border incursions into ukraine in the sami and chernihiv and kharkiv oblasts so russian special forces are going into ukraine they conduct raids a ambushes on Ukrainian troops and civilian personnel as well. So that's also something that's that's worth noting. And I think to to close it, maybe with something that I didn't talk before, the use of air power. Because we constantly see that Russians maintain a very high tempo of their sorties, especially thick fixed wings. Uh they deploy a lot of bombs with, with glide sets. Sure, they are not accurate, but when they hit a a target, then uh, then that that's a problem, and the rotary aviation is constantly in the air. So, if there is any Ukrainian vehicle appearing on the horizon, the likelihood that it would be struck by anti anti tank missile is 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 very high, which obviously limits the options on the Ukrainian side when it comes to the maneuverability and the presence of their forces. Well, thank you so much, Conrad, for answering my questions. We're we're running out of time, so I think we'll just have time for one from Francis and one from Dom. Francis Sternley. Thank you very much for your time today, Conrad. You paint quite a pessimistic picture, I think it's fair to say, of Ukraine's possibilities in the coming year. I just wanted to ask, how 
baked in is that analysis? Uh, and how dependent is it on things potentially changing if the West, say, were to ramp up its support significantly in terms of the weapons that were provided, if there were to be a sudden change politically that was favourable to Ukraine in terms of the weaponry that was give, given to them, if, say, Ukraine were to mobilise far more of its of its citizenry than it currently has, would that change your calculations? Or in a sense, have you already calculated those in, that even in the most optimistic scenarios, you think that, that Ukraine are, is in a very precarious strategic situation for the months ahead? I think, I mean, looking at the current trajectory of Western support, it's difficult to expect a sudden breakthrough in this aspect. So currently our our scenarios are based uh, on 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 that on this this view that if there will that if there will be western su- support it's likely going to be limited and the western state support for ukraine is highly unlikely to replicate what they d- delivered to ukraine this year and late late last year and i'm talking about vehicles and i'm also talking about artillery shells, which is obviously very important for Ukraine because Ukrainian land forces are very artillery centric. So, yeah, I mean, I, it's it, it currently it's I think it's very difficult to to see the current war in a in a bright colors. Ukrainians are, as I stated, slowly shifting into the defensive. I mean, the trajectory on both sides is slightly different r- right now, because the Russians are, as I stated, regaining the in- the initiative and the and the overall and the overall trajectory is upwards, whereas also psychologically, I think Ukrainians are slightly on, more on the downtrend, especially after the counter offensive. So, I think also Ukrainians need to you know work stuff around internally about the command and control of their forces, about the issues between Zaluzhny and Zelensky, training of their forces, and so mobilization, getting new men in, that's very important as, as well, because with the current level of forces available, or even with the incremental uh, gains in terms of manpower, I don't think that they will actually be able to to mount a la- a very large scale offensive um, in twenty twenty four. Hi, Conrad Dom here. Thanks so much for joining us today. Question on Ukraine's ability to mount offensives: What do you think is happening down on the the, le- the left bank of the Dnipro? I would have thought if there had been a, a sizable Russian force down there to counter Ukraine's advance, they would have been able to push them back into the river by now. And if not, then I wonder if Ukraine were taken a little by surprise at how many forces they could get over the river. Because if, if Ukraine were there in any in any size against limited, very limited Russian opposition, they m- might be expected to have pushed a bit further inland by now. What's your take on it? So first of all, Russian sources reported last week that there is a Russian force amassing in the Kherson Oblast with the objective of pushing uh, Ukrainians back over the river. I, to, to be honest, I don't know how substantiated these these reports are, uh, but they are appearing 
which suggests that at least partly they are true and there is some sort of movement on the Russian side. What is their purpose? I think from the Ukrainian side, it is to show that the West, that the offensive is still on- ongoing, that Ukrainians are active and they are you know, actively trying to put pressure on the Russians and are, and are actively trying to recapture the territory. Is it going to deliver significant results? That's highly unlikely, I'll be honest, because the force, first of all, the force that was de- de- deployed there initially was already quite spent because these were the guys who, who had been fighting uh, in western parts of the Donetsk Oblast since the counteroffensive started, and B, Ukrainians do not have sufficient number of artillery shells to actually support uh, these guys uh, on Dnipro's left bank. So, yes, I mean, it's it's highly likely that these troops will stay there for a prolonged period of time, continue to fighting Russians and trying to expand the bridgehead. From, from the Russian point of view, I don't think that they mind the current situation either because... Ukraine needs to spend a lot of resources to sustain these troops on Nipro's left bank. Artillery, ammunition, equipment, KCVAC, Medivac, and so on and so forth. So if Ukraine chooses to attrit itself in this part of the Ukraine, so, so be it. Well, thank you so much, Conrad, for joining us and sharing your thoughts. It's been really, really interesting. And thank you for fielding all of our questions. It's rare we get an analyst with such access and of such reputation as you want. So thank you so much for your time. Let's go now to our final thoughts. Dom Nichols. Thanks, David. My final thoughts are linked to the um, Timothy Snyder interview that we had, I think, on Friday, Friday's pod. Well, well worth a listen back to uh, Professor Snyder. It went out on Sunday, sorry, I'm told, by my uh, <clears throat> by my delightful assistant here. Apologies. Thanks, Francis. Now, one of the points he made, I, I mean, I agreed, with, I agreed with almost all of it, but one of the points he made that I disagreed with was when he was talking about fatigue, and he was saying it's not right, we don't have the right, those of us on the sidelines. He described this picture, he said, uh, those of us... Those of us on the sidelines of the of the track handing out the water bottles to the runners, we don't have the right to say that we're fatigued. It's not, not as if the athletes are going to stop running and come over and ask how we're doing. Now, it is correct, I think, to say that Russia, as he, the point he made, Russia will use evidence of us talking about our own fatigue and our own feelings and so on and so forth. Russia will use this as evidence of the decadent West, more concerned with how we're feeling and uh, all that kind of stuff. But no, Sodom, they don't have the intellectual framework to be able to have a sensible discussion on the subject. But I do, I am I'm slightly at odds here with uh, Professor Snyder. Now, if we, so if we remove the link between the word fatigue and the word bored or the phrase no longer interested, want it to end at any cost, I think we might be getting somewhere. I think it is okay to be fatigued in the purest sense of the word. It shows our um, emotional response is still healthy, functioning and accurate. I think there's a close link between the emotional response of caring for the people much closer to this fighting than we are, a link between that and, and our moral compass, which is why... Russia will say what they will, and and the, and the trolls look, don't even bother trying to engage on this because you're just, you're just not up to it, lads. 
But look, it, that doesn't mean that we're trying to put ourselves at the centre of this story. But it does acknowledge that we are involved to a greater or lesser degree. And we are all the better for it, I think. I note today is International Volunteer Day. Many groups that we've had on this pod have been raising funds and buying equipment for Ukraine's armed forces. That doesn't happen by people who are not engaged in this fight at whatever level and wherever they are in the world. You listening to this now are engaged in this fight at at the level you are. If all you can do is listen, that's great. All we can do is sit here and gob off, and we will. So it is okay to be fatigued. All we have to do, I think, is look after ourselves, look after each other, and just like this pod, we get up and we go again tomorrow. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Dom Nichols. To finish today, Francis Sternley. Well, thank you, David. A heavy episode today, but I just wanted to thank all of those listeners and readers who dialed in on Sunday for the Telegraph's Christmas charity appeal. Dom and I were both there wearing our ghastliest Christmas attire. Uh, Incredibly, the paper raised £241,000 on that Sunday alone. Now, among the many interesting conversations I had, I I spoke to one elderly lady who remembered watching Spitfires flying over her house during the war and her mother and her counting them out and then counting them back in to see how many had returned. But the real highlight was that because the RAF Benevolent Fund was one of the four charities, we had a surprise visit from an 102-year-old RAF veteran into the office who was walking around and chatting to everybody. He flew 50 missions over Germany during the war, 13 times over Berlin, and he didn't look a day past 85 And I spoke to him for at least 20 minutes, asking him what expertise a century brings to foreign affairs. And he was extremely well informed. He spoke passionately about Ukraine and also thinking longer term about the threats posed by the rise of China. He was deeply concerned about the implications of waning American support for Kyiv in particular. He vividly described his memories of the 1930s and the hang-wringing of political leaders over the Anschluss and the Nazi seizure of Czechoslovakia later on. Appeasement doesn't work, he told me bluntly. And he also described his reaction when he heard the news that Hitler had invaded Russia in 1941 and later that year when Pearl Harbour was attacked, which he said came as a blessed relief because he knew it was at that moment on that the war was won. And whenever I'm fortunate enough to meet veterans from the Second World War, it only underlines to me how these periods we see as the distant past are actually only recent history and that the horrors unleashed within a human lifespan are never buried too deep under the surface of our respective societies. We must not fall into the trap of thinking that the world can never explode into the chaos that it did in that time. Others fought and died for the lessons it is our privilege to remember. And if listeners still want to donate, then you can. We'll add a link in the description. And thank you again to all of those who reached out to us. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our world affairs newsletter which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine Live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day 
including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Charles Gear, and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells.